Acts 2. Almost everywhere, Christian services end with some form of benediction. We often quote the benediction from Numbers, where the pastor will raise his hand and say, the Lord bless you and keep you, and the Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. And everybody goes out with a benediction that is on them. Or we might read Jude 24, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To this only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority forever and ever. That is a blessing that is put on a particular people. People who belong. There's a craving in our society today to belong. Everybody wants to belong to something. Um, you feel special when you belong. You join a gym and you get a little tag and it's just like that you can put on your keychain and you feel like you're somebody. Uh, you get a library card and you feel like you're somebody. It's nice to belong. And people want to belong to churches. And churches uh, are often growing simply because they're meeting people's desire to belong somewhere. Unfortunately, in Christian churches, people will start belonging before they really understand, before they really believe, before they really know. And they can belong to the community, but they might not really belong to the fellowship. What is the fellowship? God said in the Old Testament, my people die for lack of knowledge. So, we want to take some time this morning to just do a lesson on the fellowship. That's why you've got a handout. And uh, we're going to study what the New Testament says about the fellowship. And it, of course, it won't be comprehensive because we don't have weeks. We have uh, just this sermon to do this, this time right now. But I wanted to write it down for you so you can follow along and then take it home and it can become part of our discussion later on. When the church started, God's Holy Spirit came upon 120 people in an upper room. And they began speaking in tongues. And people from all over heard Peter's message in their own language. They were amazed. And they were told by Peter in that message that the leaders, their leaders, had crucified the Savior of the world. They were suddenly made aware that this place where they had all come to Jerusalem, which was supposed to be the best of the best, a holy place where God was honored and worshipped, this place was corrupt to the core, crooked to the core, so much so that they had destroyed the Savior that was sent by God for them. Peter said, you have crucified the Lord. And when they heard that message, their hearts were cut. The scriptures say they were cut to the heart. Have you ever felt that kind of conviction? Cut to the heart. And they said, what must we do? And Peter said, repent and be baptized. And uh, they were baptized, and that day, 3,000-some souls were added to the 120 that were there, just like that. That was the beginning of the church. The church is referred to by Jesus and by the apostles as the body of Christ. The church is a body. There's one whole long section where Paul uh, makes that metaphor go a long way. He's talking about uh, not everybody can be a nose, not everybody can be a mouth, not all these different parts because we're all members of the body. But I put for you in the top of your notes uh, just some straight-up statements that make it absolutely clear that the church is the body. Jesus is the head of the body, the church. So Jesus is the head, we are the body. Or 1 Corinthians 12, 13, for one spirit we were all baptized into one body. And Ephesians 4, 4, 
there is one body. Now, when Peter wrapped up his message in Acts 2, 40 and 41, he uh, summarized his message. And I put it there for you, and I broke that section into four parts because I want to make some observations. It says in Acts 2, 40, And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourself from this crooked generation. So there are many, many words. We don't know how long it took. It might have been hours. It might have been all day long. I don't know. But he, he talked and talked and talked and talked. But the summary of all that talking can be uh, st- stated concisely. Save yourself from this crooked generation. So you'll notice that's part one and number one. The summary of Peter's message is save yourself from what? A crooked generation. The gospel does not just save us from eternal damnation, but it is supposed to save us from an unjust and hostile culture where dishonesty and treachery reign. By turning away from that culture to Christ, people found themselves drawn to a new community. Literally, they were being made into a new community. This, this is harmonized all over in the New Testament. For example, in Romans chapter 5, Paul refers to Jesus as the second Adam. The first Adam had this uh, humanity of which we are all a part, naturally. But the new humanity, as Paul refers to him in Romans chapter 5, is Jesus. He's the, he's the starter of the new humanity. He's the uh, father of the new humanity. And so there's a new people group starting. The old people group is corrupted to the core. The new people group is in Jesus with a, a, a living, pure, holy head. Jesus is that head. And so Peter said, you've got to save yourself from this God-hating, this um, uh, anti-Christ generation. And the response, see section 2, so those who received his word. That word receive, as like uh, number 2 says, um, was uh, welcome. These people were entrapped in a hostile, crooked generation, and they welcomed both Peter and his message, as we ought to do. In the Old Testament, there's an interesting story of, uh, of one of God's uh, chosen, Lot. Lot was the nephew of Abraham. And Lot uh, chose to live in Sodom because it was really a nice place at the time. And Abraham went the opposite direction. Remember that story? A lot of you remember. I'm looking around at people who know this, this story. But uh, Sodom was so wicked, God said, I've got to destroy that, that city. It's so wicked. And so he sent messengers first to Abraham. And uh, Abraham found out what uh, God was planning to do with his angels, his messengers. And uh, angels and messengers, that's the same word, by the way. Okay, And so um, the messengers said, well, we're, we're sent to destroy uh, uh, Sodom. And Abraham began to pray to God and said, God, uh, if there are 50 righteous people in Sodom, would you, would you destroy it? And God said, no, I won't destroy it if there are 50 righteous people. Then Abraham said, well, God, if there are 45 people that are righteous in Sodom, would you destroy Sodom if there were just 45 people? And God said, no, I won't destroy it. And Abraham kept petitioning God, getting God. He was like uh, de- uh, dealing with God. Uh, bickering with God, uh, bartering with God in prayer, and got God all the way down to 10. If there are only 10 righteous people in Sodom, God said, I'll save the city. So then the messengers of God showed up at Sodom. And um, Sodom was a dangerous place to be. It's a dangerous place to go in as a foreigner and as a stranger. But uh, Lot welcomed the messengers. He welcomed the messengers into his home. And the messengers told him what was going to happen with Sodom. Now Sodom, they uh, it's a horrible story, but they wanted to, to 
Lot to give, hand over the messengers to them. They wanted to rape the men. Lot was not a good person. This is one thing that we learn about the grace of God. Lot was not a good person. He actually offered his daughters to them instead of these, uh, uh, his messengers. But uh, the messengers, they struck the evil men of Sodom with blindness, and they rescued Lot and his family from that evil generation. And they took them out. But it started with this welcome, a welcoming by Lot to, uh, to uh, the messengers of God. When the people received Peter's message, they welcomed it, and they were baptized, number three. Look at number three in the notes. By welcoming the message of the gospel, a message that is alien and contrary to the crooked generation, the people knew themselves to be separated out of that hostile and crooked culture into a new community. And that was symbolized by a public and ceremonial washing. In fact, baptism is sometimes translated washings in the, in the New Testament, particularly in Hebrew. Uh, so they were ceremonially and publicly washed as if to say, we are not in that crooked generation, but we are now part of a new society. Baptism was an act of separation from one identity and entrance into a new identity. 3,000 people suddenly cleansed themselves symbolically from being a part of the crooked generation, saying, this generation killed Jesus, the Lord, but no, we're going to follow him. He's living. We got another chance, if you will, because death did not hold him. We can now follow him, and we're going to cleanse ourselves symbolically of being a part of that generation and become part of a new people of God. And there were added to that, uh, that day about 3,000 souls. Number four, the newly Baptist people, uh, baptized people were added to the new community. And that very word indicates a different community. They were at one time not a part of this community, and then after baptism, they were added to the community. And so that gets us to our text that we've been looking at closely for several weeks. They devoted themselves. That word devoted means a steadfast cleaving and remaining to a, uh, a new way of being a community. This is a new culture. One of the best definitions, most, one of the most widely accepted definitions of culture is shared values and shared understanding of of things and acts, a shared understanding, shared value. And what was the shared value that they had? There's four of them right here in this uh, verse, verse 42. The apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. And we spent some time on the apostles' teaching, but these are the four vital functions that the body of Christ does and, and gives to us. The apostles' teaching on page two of your notes is what we call the confessional function. This is uh, the tradition that was handed down to us by word and example from the apostles. It's a dynamic um, message because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. But today we want to focus on what does it mean by giving themselves to the fellowship. So I'm going to invite you to follow with me in my notes. I'm going to try to lecture this. We're going to, I can't help but preach every now and then, but uh, I'm going to, I really strongly believe because God's people die from lack of knowledge and every single week I'm running into people who think they understand Christianity and have actually been inoculated to Christian faith by Christians because of shallow understanding about these important truths. So it's really, really important that we get it. And so um, what does it mean to give themselves to the fellowship? It's not socializing. We are social animals. We love to socialize, all of us. Even if we're an introvert like I am, you still like to hang out with people. Just maybe not a lot of people for a lot of time, but uh, different people at different times. We are social animals. And Christians love to hang out together, but that's not necessarily fellowship. Um, fellowship is, in, in the New Testament sense, is much, much more. And one word, it's, it's so important that a lot of Christians, even though they don't know any Greek, they know some Greek words. For example, almost everybody knows amen. That's a Greek word, by the way. Or uh, they know um, uh, koinonia, which is the word we're looking at today. Koinonia is translated 
participation, fellowship, communion, sharing, contribution. So what that means is baptism into the body necessarily results in a dynamic. Dynamic means it's the opposite of static. It's, a, it's alive. It's living. A dynamic participation, communion, sharing, con- contribution, and fellowship with the head, Christ, and all the members of the body, the church. That's what happens when we come into Christ. We are brought into a living fellowship where it's something that's dynamic and real. The word in this form, koinonia, only shows up 19 times. There's other forms in which it shows up more, but uh, every time it's in very important texts that define the Christian faith. And the theme of koinonia saturates the entire New Testament. I want to show you some of these critical passages um, just to give you an idea. For example, it's in the text we're looking at because... uh, Acts 2.42 is a seminal passage on the roots of the Christian church. It's, it's um, the fellowship. It's the beginning of the fellowship. It's the inauguration of the fellowship. In 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16, Paul is addressing um, uh, a very complicated subject of worship and idolatry and eating meat that's offered to idols and the Lord's Supper, and uh, in, in that conversation, he talks about the fact that when we worship and we break the bread of the, uh, uh, of the Lord's Supper and drink the cup of the Lord's Supper, we are entering into a koinonia, the fellowship, okay? So that's a very important text for the Christian faith. 2 Corinthians 6.14, we're going to look at it a little bit later. 2 Corinthians 8.4 is in the context of one of the most significant historic events of the early church, the international collection of the saints. The use of koinonia here is significant because the collection for the saints was more than just charity. It was a head-turning, radical act of unprecedented proportions with soteriological, that's the, the doctrine of salvation, eschatological, the doctrine of end times, and theological implications. So, um, let me just, i got to park there for a little bit because you gotta, you got to imagine the strangeness of this. In the day when Paul started his ministry, um, the world was very isolated from every place. The Romans had built roads that had started connecting the world more than it had ever been connected before. But still, um, you know, to just go a couple of miles took a long time because this was be, before the time of, of cars and all kinds of vehicles that we have, definitely before the time of radio and internet and uh, those kinds of things. And so people were clustered together in cultures and tribes and nations. And uh, one group of people that was spread out all over the place, the diaspora of Jews was all over the place, and everybody hated the Jews. And the reason everybody hated the Jews was because the Jews hated everybody, okay? Uh, It was mutual hatred going one direction, uh, both directions. The Jews had the audacity to think they were God's people. And uh, they would, uh, uh, as God's people, uh, God would come to them and they would rule the world. And uh, everybody else was just nothing. They were referred to as dogs. They were referred to, you know, you didn't even want to touch these uh, filthy people. Now, if somebody thinks you're filthy and ugly and gross and disgusting, you're probably not going to like them, are you? Right? Uh, you're going to say, well, I'm not filthy, gross, ugly, and disgusting. I'm, I think I'm pretty normal. Maybe you're the one with issues. And so there's this uh, intense hatred between the Jews and the non-Jews. And then Paul the Apostle comes and starts preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ Salvation is from the Jews, he said. And guess what? Gentiles, non-Jews, are accepting this message. Now, it might be one thing. It was kind of a mental ascent or maybe kind of an ethereal, philosophical idea. But this got really practical because Paul was saying, now the wall of separation between the Jews and the non-Jews has been broken down and you all have become one in Christ Jesus. It's so practical. Guess what, you brother and sister Gentiles? Guess what? 
the Jews really need some money. Now, this is where the rubber hits the road. Even today in 2019, we know, you know, um, we're, we're very uh, scrupulous about who we give to, if we give. The Jews really need some money. They're hurting. There's, and, and, and so Paul began what some historians say had never happened before. Get this. It had never happened before. An international collection, a voluntary international collection. Not something that was compulsory done by, you know, Caesar getting taxes. A voluntary international collection. And uh, these people took up money. Paul said at one point they gave even beyond their means. They went crazy in their giving. They went beyond their means to give. This huge amount of money, historians have tried to guess how much it was. It was just a lot. An international collection of money to help these people that they had never talked to, never seen, never heard, uh, and uh, by faith they believed that they were in fellowship with these people. They were in the same fellowship with them. They were a part of the body, and the body was physically, materially hungry, and they needed help, and so they actually used the word uh, when, when Paul was saying, wait, man, you're giving way too much. Some of you are just, you're, you're giving me beyond your needs. They said, we want to participate, there's the word fellowship, with them through giving. So this is a huge event that takes up a lot of uh, uh, sections in the New Testament and the word koinonia is in that context. One of the most important hymns about the Lord Jesus Christ is in Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. I mean chapter 2. And uh, Paul starts chapter 2 of Philippians by saying, uh, he's pleading with the Philippians to come together and be united, to have a one mind. And he, he starts it by saying, if there is any consolation in Christ, if there's any affections, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, Fulfill ye my joy in being coming like-minded. Now, the word if for us has this kind of conditional sense, like eh, there may be or there may not be, right? But in the, uh, in the Greek sense, it's, it's like our word assuming. Assuming, and we assume right, that there is fellowship in the Spirit. Then come together and be of one mind. Because Christ himself humbled himself and made himself lower than the servant and died a, 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 a humbling death in order for us to uh, have this unity. So that's what I've done here is given you an idea of how important this word is. And even though the word in this form shows up 19 times, uh, I've given you some of the clusters. Here's one of the most important clusters, and it's in 1 John. And I wrote that down for you in the notes because I want to look at that one closely in 1 John. That which, uh, and John's an apostle. Remember, uh, um, we, we want the teaching of the apostles. So this is what the apostle says. That which was from the beginning, which we, you could circle we and say, this is, the, this is the apostles talking. Which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon and touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. Verse 3, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you, so that you too may have, here's the word, fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son. And we're writing these things, verse 4, so that our joy may be full. This is a message that we've heard from him, verse 5, and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. So if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth, verse 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Three observations from this very important text because all, all of 1 John is talking about the real and the unreal in the Christian faith. 
um, it's, it's a good text for a beginning Christian, but it's a good one for an old Christian. I was just meditating this week on 1 John chapter 4, where it says to test the spirits to see if they are of God. Because I have the privilege of engaging with a number of people and ideas each week where uh, it sounds really good and it's very tempting and very alluring, but we need to test the spirits to see if they are of God. So all of 1 John, those five chapters, is about what is real and what is not real. And it's incredibly vital to understand that John is talking about the fellowship. So three observations. Number one on page three of of five there. The koinonia is directly connected to and rooted in the personal experience and proclamation of the apostles. Thus the apostles' teaching and traditions matter. When they say, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, we listen. This means we are people of the Bible. That's why we open up the Bible and sometimes uh, uh, we... we, uh, We'll do notes like this or, or keynote or uh, we'll find all kinds of ways in small group to open up the Bible because we are people of the Bible. We want to get the message. The fellowship is rooted in the apostles' teaching. Amen or oh me? It's rooted in the apostles' teaching. Number two, the koinonia is, I love this thought and don't have enough time to develop it, but I put it here for you to meditate on. It is divine. Uh, this fellowship is not uh, uh, Chicago Bears fans fellowship or Green Bay Packers fans fellowship. It's not an American uh, fellowship or a nationalist fellowship. It's, it's not a club membership or anything. There is something mystical and divine and spiritual in this fellowship. And it's amazing to me that um, you can go anywhere in the world as a true Christian and instantly connect on a deeper than human level, on a spiritual level, on a divine level with people, even though you can't speak their language. It's, it is dynamic and organic union with God. This fellowship is transtemporal. That means uh, it's, it's not contained by time. One of our hymns is uh, For All the Saints. Sometimes we sing it... Um, uh, maybe once a year, uh, but it's, it, it speaks to the fact that we have fellowship. We don't pray to the saints as some people do, but the doctrine of praying to the saints comes out of a distortion of this fact that we have a dynamic fellowship with all who have gone on before us, okay? Uh, and uh, we are in, they're in the fellowship, we're in the fellowship. They're, uh, they're just ahead of us in their glorification. We got a ways to go, but uh, it, it's transtemporal. It's transcultural. It's, uh, and I put transcultural instead of intercultural or multicultural because it's above our cultures and it's spiritual. This means we're, we're people with spiritual life. And number three, uh, when John says God is light and in him is no darkness at all, he gives us uh, the sine qua non. That's the essential condition of a thing that's absolutely necessary. So the sine qua non, I, I went over this with uh, uh, the small group on Thursday night. But the sine qua non of apple pie is apple, okay? If you don't have apples in your apple pie, you don't have apple pie. And the sine qua non of pumpkin pie is pumpkin. The sine qua non of squash pie is squash. And I'd rather have squash pie without squash. And I just call it squash. And uh, that's what a lot of people uh, want to do with the church, okay? They want to have... Uh, uh, a squash pie without the squash. They want to have church without what is absolutely essential. And so you can have a, a, a gathering, you can have singing, and you can have all of, uh, of the show of it and do all of the actions of it, but not actually get the spirit of it and the mood of it. Uh, Pastor Scott and I were talking about how sports can be that way uh, in, in when uh, people who are not familiar with, uh, say, baseball or football as a, a, because they weren't born into America, but they want to do that because they want to be American. So they, they do all of the things, but they, they haven't yet fully got the culture of it. It hasn't deeply enculturated into them. And when we go to another country, we can uh, say, you know, I'm French. Uh, I like uh, baguette and uh, some, uh, some uh, Bordeaux and some good cheese and... Uh, 
I, I like uh, wearing the beret and riding the bicycle. And uh, we can say I'm French and do all kinds of French things. But the French look at us and say, well, you're not French. Uh, and it, it's, uh, it's not deeply in us. And so the sine qua non, the absolute necessary component of fellowship is light. And without it, Togetherness and socializing is not fellowship at all. We're going to get together tonight, but if there's no light, it's not fellowship. God said, uh, God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of the life. This means that all fellowship is God-centered and God-honoring. Another passage is 2 Corinthians 6. Look at what it says in 2 Corinthians 6, the bottom of page 3. Do not be unequally yoked. That word yoked can be um, matched. Actually, unequally yoked is one word in the Greek. It says don't be mismatched. It's a good application for marriage. Well, Young people, you shouldn't uh, date unbelievers because dating will lead normally to marriage. Uh, you don't be mismatched. If you're in Christ, uh, you don't want to be mismatched with unbelievers. For Then he goes on to say, and I italicize these words because they all are features of fellowship. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship, there's our word, has light with darkness? So what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer have with an unbeliever? Uh, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we, God's people, are the temple of the living God, as God said. I will make my dwelling place among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean. Then I will welcome you. That's uh, uh, from the Old Testament. Uh, Paul, uh, Paul is quoting the Old Testament because that, this is how the Jews felt. This is why they were so snobby toward everybody else. And God forbid that we should uh, inherit from the Old Testament a kind of snobbiness and, and, uh, from everybody else. I'm going to address that a little bit later. But sometimes in an attempt to overcorrect uh, 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 sectarianism or snobbiness because we are the people of God, uh, we have diminished the fact that there is actually a difference, okay? There's actually a difference. Well, let me give you some observations on this quickly. We have to understand in the Christian worldview, there is radical antithesis. I wanted to use the principle of antithesis, and I wrestled with that, but I know some of you are biologists, and you were going to think of Darwin's principle of antithesis, and that would get you all off, so forget that. Uh, and uh, so I, I don't want to say, but it is a principle of antithesis. It's just not Darwinian. Uh, and and the, the idea is that the opposites do exist, opposites that cannot go together. Light and darkness, you can't have them in the same, they don't go together. Christ and Belial, that's the name for Satan, don't go together. Lawlessness and righteousness don't go together. You get the picture. So we, we need to understand in this world of inclusiveness and, and uh, one worldism and all of those kind of things, there, there's, this, uh, there's this cultural disdain for the reality of antithesis. Number two, there's a distinction in relationship. A set-apartness, that's a, oh, another way of saying holiness in the Christian worldview. The words partnership, fellowship, accord, agreement, portion are all words that connote close relationship. So uh, that distinction needs to be in our minds and our hearts like it is in Galatians 6.10. When we have opportunity, let's do good to everyone. There's no distinction. We should love everybody in that sense. But if, if we have to make a choice and only have so much money, especially those that are of the household of faith. You see that? So there is a distinction that is made. Now, I want to I wrap this up with, um, with some, um, some applications on this thought of what we're giving our, ourselves to. Roman numeral one, to the world's inclusiveness, the gospel message of fellowship with God is exclusive. Peter said in Acts 4, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by whom we must be saved. That's exclusive language. For some of you, that may not be hard to embrace, 
there may be some of us for which this is difficult. One of my favorite philosophers, theologians, has just published a book on universalism. And uh, I, I personally have wrestled with the exclusive, exclusivity of this statement. Okay? There is, uh, and I had to come to the faith where my faith just locked in on this reality and, and on this truth. But there is no salvation under, uh, no name under heaven by which people will be saved. Saved from eternal judgment and saved from a crooked and perverse generation. And the church is messed up. Jesus said it would be messed up. Among the wheat would be tares. And the church has hurt a lot of people. And the history of the church has some ugliness in it. This, this is true. And it takes a lot of faith to say, really? Is there salvation for me uh, in a, a Christ among the church, his people? I don't see it because all I see is pretty normal people. Their marriages are not as good as unsaved people's marriages. Their family structure is not great. Their discipline is not as great. And we can look at all of the problems. But bottom line is uh, the, uh, the salvation of God is not in people. It is in Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ has brought together people who believe that simple reality. And there is no salvation outside of the church in the, the sense that the church is in Christ. That's, that's a, a conviction that we must have and, and hold to if we're going to teach the apostles' doctrine. That's why letter A, look at this. This is why God hates false doctrine. Paul, the apostle, said, but, in, but even if I, we or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. In Jude 3, uh, Jude says, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So now you see how it's integrated fellowship in the apostles' teaching. We've got to teach what the Bible says because we want to have fellowship. And uh, uh, it's very important that we get it right. Letter B. This is why accurate teaching is emphasized. Paul said to Timothy, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. And it's, it's stated that way on the teaching, not your teaching, not my teaching, on the teaching, because it's highlighting the fact, say it right what was given once and for all. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers, First Timothy 4, 6. And not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that who, we who teach, this is James, we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Paul says that Christ gave to the church pastor-teachers. The responsibility that Pastor Scott and I have is enormous and frightening and even threatening at times. And there's spiritual opposition that happens. But we must not shirk from the duty of teaching the whole counsel of God. Because if we don't teach the whole counsel of God, we won't uh, have fellowship. And we, won't, uh, un we will undermine that fellowship. So... Pray for us. Pray for us that we would be faithful in the teaching. Roman numeral two. To the world's exclusiveness and sectarianism, because there's a lot of that, and there's a lot of that in the church. The gospel message of fellowship with God is inclusive. I love how it's stated in the New Living Translation, Micah 4.1. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's house will be the highest of all, the most important place on earth, it will be raised above all other hills, and people from all over the world will stream there to worship. Doesn't that just give you the goosebumps? And this cherished verse from John 3.16, For God so loved the world that whoever believes in Him, whosoever, 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 will not perish but have everlasting life. Do you believe that? The invitation is open to all. And in Christ, look at what Galatians 3, 27 and 8 says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ Jesus, when you became a Christian, you were baptized into Christ Jesus. Your water baptism symbolizes that, but immediately you are baptized into Christ Jesus. And you have put on Christ, and you are now connected to the head. And there, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no, no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. That's an amazing thing. And so that's why churches should strive to have many different ethnicities and many cultures. They should be open up to other ethnicities and other cultures because 
it, in Christ, there is none of that. We are all included in Christ. And if you do not know Christ and you know yourself not to know Christ right now as you're listening to this uh, study, the invitation's for you. It's for everybody. Jesus said, come unto me, all of you that are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The invitation is for you to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and confess with your mouth and be saved. And when you are saved, you will be saved from eternal judgment, but you will also be brought into a people group. By the way, the fastest growing religion in the world by conversion is Christianity. Okay? Islam is growing fast, but they're growing fast uh, not just by conversion, but by uh, having a lot of babies. Uh, and, uh, but the fastest growing uh, world religion in the world by voluntary conversion is Christianity. In China today, uh, Christianity is flourishing and growing. There's millions and millions and hundreds of millions of people in China that are Christian in a place where it's, it's difficult to be a Christian. In a place where there's not a lot of religious freedom, uh, Christianity keeps growing and growing. It cannot be suppressed because it's a dynamic fellowship. And we ought to pray and be concerned for, that's, uh, and remember the people in China and, and Asia and Africa and all over the world where they're, they're, being, they're suffering because uh, uh, of their Christian faith. But we ought to also remember that because of this inclusiveness, letter A, this is why God hates division. When Paul gives the work of the flesh in Galatians, he, he starts out by saying sexual immorality. We can think of that and say, yeah, that's definitely bad. But rivalries and dissension and division are also works of the flesh, and God hates it. Letter B on page 5. This is why God hates preferentialism. In James 2, James rebukes them. He says, you know, when a rich man comes to your church, you say, oh, have this nice place. When a poor man and a homeless come, you say, oh, go over there a little bit. God hates that because in Christ... There is inclusiveness. There is no partiality. And this letter C is why the goal of the church is always and ultimately unity. Ephesians 4.3, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit of the bond of peace. So as I've already mentioned, Roman numeral 3 on page 5, the universal invitation of God is to an exclusive fellowship with him that is closed to all who do not follow the way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father by me. And that invitation answers two fundamental questions that dominate the minds of men today. I spend a lot of time every week in this with people who are unbelievers every week in this. And this is uh, uh, where I'm swimming all the time. Who am I? Who am I? Descartes and Locke were Western philosophers and then there's countless other philosophers including Eastern philosophy that have wrestled with how humans can answer this question. Who am I? And the fellowship's answer to this, look at number two under letter A, Roman numeral three. The fellowship's answer is this. See what, and this comes from 1 John. What's real? See what kind of love the Father has shown to us that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. The answer to who am I for the Christian is I am a child of God. I'm a child of God. That's who I am. That's got a, uh, every decision I make and every, every uh, plan that I make ought to flow out of that. And what is the meaning of life? Emerson and Thoreau, Camus and Sartre, French philosophers, American and French philosophers, uh, who are very influential in American conceptions of identity, uh, have, uh, have influenced American thought with existentialism. I listen to a professor every week who is Emersonian. Ralph Waldo Emerson was kind of the forefather of the existential philosophers. The existential philosophers, simply put, it means is, uh, the, the simplest way to identify them is that um, we decide our own identity and our essence because we exist. Okay? That's, and since we exist, we can decide about ourselves what we're going to be. And the, the, the teacher I listened to 
the, every week. He's steeped in Emersonian uh, uh, philosophy and idea where we have to um, uh, decide who we are. Um, Jean-Paul Sartre said, any meaning of life, of your life, has been given, it, uh, given to it by you. This is Californian, by the way. Okay? This is where we live in California. Any meaning of life is what you decided to mean. And it, everybody you talk to is somehow influenced this way or not. We ourselves are. All the self-help uh, classes, all the uh, gurus, there are tons and there are thousands upon thousands of thousands of teachers around California that have followers that uh, pay them tons of money. And, uh, and, and this is the, the idea. Albert Camus was much more uh, dark. He said, any meaning of your life is whatever you are doing that prevents you from killing yourself. He started his novel that the, the French uh, kids uh, have to read in uh, high school. He starts his novel with this sentence saying, the fundamental problem of life is suicide. Deciding whether you should live or not live is the most important question and from that flow all other philosophies. <laughs> Pretty negative and dark, okay? But he's just stating darkly what a lot of Californians believe. And, and so they, they really believe they could change themselves and give meaning to themselves and choose what they want to believe. But here's the fellowship's answer to that, number two. And guess who says it? It's Peter. His divine power. Jesus' divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises so that through them you may become, and here's a word, this, the same word as koinonia, just a different uh, format of it, you may become fellowshippers of the divine nature and here's that theme that he preached his first message again, having escaped the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Are you following the themes there? Uh, the reason to life, brothers and sisters, if you've ever been depressed, and a lot of people struggle with depression, in the Bay Area we have higher suicide rates in our high school than the rest of the nation together. The meaning for life is that uh, for those of us in Christ, is that He has saved us from this present crooked, corrupt generation and has put us into fellowship with others that He has also saved, and He is leading us to where we will one day be partakers of the divine nature. Without sin. Without darkness. That is the meaning of life. And so... One reason why I devote myself to the fellowship, even though I am by nature an introvert. I devote myself to the fellowship. Committed to it. Work hard for it. Love it. Enjoy it. One reason why is because I have believed in Jesus Christ, want to be saved from this crooked generation. Let me, uh, I'm just going to turn this over to Pastor Scott, but I want to ask these questions at the bottom of page five and give one illustration. Who am I? Am I a child of God? Am I in fellowship? Does my life have meaning? Is my life devoted to the fellowship? Is my life devoted to God? Does my wallet show that I'm devoted to the fellowship? Does my time show that I'm devoted to the fellowship? Does my mood show that I'm devoted to the fellowship? Does my work show that I'm devoted to, uh, uh, devoted to the fellowship? Am I in church, in a church that represents what is called, what the, that represents well the calling of the fellowship? Do I engage in the one another's of fellowship, forgiving one another, forbearing one another, forgiving the preachers who have gone long? Do I engage in all of those for one another's? And when I sin, do I know that I am still in the fellowship? You know what? By grace, we are saved and brought into the fellowship, not by works. 
I wanted to show you my, my son's first uh, jersey of six years ago that had his name on the back because there's a story about that. Um, at that young age, he was so excited to, to try out for a team, and he got on the team. He got accepted on the team. But he didn't understand that he had been accepted on the team. And so at the first two practices, he was just a nervous wreck, and he was a little, little guy. And he was uh, not doing well and crying and not performing to what the, the people who had picked him to be on the team knew he could do. And one, uh, one night while he was taking a shower, I was talking to him, and he asked, Dad, am I on the team? I said, yeah, you're on the team. Coach picked you. He put you on the team. And so I called the coach and said, I don't, I don't know, but maybe part of his problem is for some reason he doesn't realize that he's on the team. The very next practice, uh, the coach came out to the car, met Corbin. He's a little guy. He's about younger than Braden is now. Met Corbin. Took Corbin by the hand and said, hey, I want to show you something. And he took Corbin uh, to a box, un unwrapped the box, and pulled out a jersey and it had Corbin's name on the jersey, Bixby. And that's the first uniform Corbin had ever had with his name on it. And he said, you're on the team. I picked you. And you're on this team. And no matter how bad you do in practice, you can't get off this team. You're on it. Guess what? That practice was a night and day difference. Because he was at peace. He was at assurance that he had been safely brought into the fellowship of the team. That's what Jesus does for us. We'll have bad practices. We'll have bad behaviors. We'll have bad attitudes. We'll sometimes do very wrongly. But Jesus wants you to know that your name is written on the jersey. You're on the team. He's picked you. He's called you, and you can't kick yourself off the fellowship.